Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World, a podcast dedicated to faithful parents navigating their families through a stormy culture. Militaries have described the fog of war as dealing with the risk and uncertainty of a battle and the self-awareness of that uncertainty. Militaries try to reduce the fog by getting to the truth. Welcome back to Raising Joyful Children in an Angry World. I'm your host, Paul Osborne. Today, however, I want to talk about the fog in culture wars because it deals with the unpredictability of a society resulting from disguising and moving moral boundaries, resulting in a world of confusion. It's funny that the fog of culture war is is found in a song called World of Confusion by Phil Collins. I don't know if you recall the song, but he sings about volumes of people causing too many problems and a shortage of love. His answer is to fight back. Uncle Cracker's remake of Mentor Williams' song, Drifting Away, deals with daily confusion, and he tries to escape the unkindness of society. His response is to flee. The songs, I want to say, are reactions to the confusion and the fog, but they miss the root cause. What is at stake and what can be done about it? Russian novelist, the famous Russian novelist of War and Peace, Leo Tolstoy wrote that a culture where good and evil are recognizable, reconciliation can take place. Where facades mask morality and right and wrong is unrecognizable, forgiveness is not attainable. The cause of the fog of war is captured by Tolstoy. It's the masking of morality. And what is at stake is the Christian family can lose its joy. This summer, leading clergy of the Church of England declared that the United Kingdom was no longer a Christian nation. It has for years imported facades of right and wrong. Rod Little of the London Times responded this week. He said that the declaration might be true of the country, but the nation is now lost in a moral wilderness that has cost them their quiescence or tranquility that the church once provided. He went on to say that the humanists who rejoiced at this news have provided nothing other than bureaucratic guff to replace it. He even joked in a tribute to Richard Lynn, a psychologist that had recently passed, who had proposed a a theory that governments were conniving to have half-wits, morons, and imbeciles outbreed us in order to control society. Later that week, another Times writer, Jeremy Clarkson, he describes a conversation he had with some Gen Z Brits, as he called them, on holiday in France. He says when he asked if they could think of a single good thing about Great Britain, they answered no. When Clarkson heard the answer, he suggested, oh, it was their poor education. But Tolstoy explains, once you mask right and wrong, you lose forgiveness and all you're left with is condemnation. Something good? What is good? And you see, it's hard to imagine the empire that was once influenced by evangelicals that not only outlawed slavery at home, but militarily fought the slave trade off the African coast. They sent Dr. Livingston to better educate the African nations on agriculture because they needed to replace the income that was lost when that awful practice ended. 
This is the country that fought the Nazis over the skies of London, and it has now sunk into a shadow of itself. And it's not just these writers who point out this joyless state, but it was also expressed by Oliver Bullough. He's a financial crime book writer. He wrote a book called Butler to the World. It's the same kinds of questions. Now, the big issue for kingdom families is keeping the murky waters of cultural confusion that polluted the Church of England out of our life. Because we're seeing similar contaminated thoughts, in fact, we have for some time, pouring into American Christianity. Churches and followers falling into a theological term called syncretism. That's where you mix things like cultural facades of morality into your theology. So people try to have a performance, I did it my way, faith mixed with amazing grace, or situational ethics with moral law of God. And when our kids and our families get plugged into places in which the wall between the kingdoms is lowered or removed, the fog of confusion and its spiritual paganization of souls comes with it. Christianity is not a religion of people parading their moral superiority as it is often believed by those outside the church and sadly sometimes practiced by those inside. But our faith calls followers to recognize that we have broken the moral law in order to receive the forgiveness, restoration, and absolution that the gospel offers us. This is why when we allow moral facades to cover moral law into the church and into our faith, and we bring that fog of culture war with it, we lose the joy that comes through forgiveness. We're strangely left with condemnation. I mean, you can yell, no judgment, no judgment, all you want. But the math of removing moral law or covering it up and losing the process of forgiveness leaves you with condemnation. If you've ever hurt someone and asked them to forgive you or someone's asked you for your forgiveness, it's generally a joyous occasion. I can remember as a teen, my friends and I in the neighborhood, we got caught being in, in a party at a house that we didn't have really permission to be at. We all got in a bunch of trouble. And my parents made me go to my friend's parents who had not given us permission and have a face-to-face -face apology. So hard as a teenager. But when that mom, when my friend's mom said, I forgive you, it was like a weight had been lifted. And I sensed that she felt some joy in, in extending it. See, this is what Tolstoy is talking about. It's, there was a right and a wrong, and then a practice for me to go and say, please forgive me, I shouldn't have done that. We can't have it without the right and wrong. And this is frankly a practice we, I've talked about before, but it's something you need in your home of your kids and yourselves asking each other for forgiveness, not just saying you're sorry. But when we adopt the world's mores, when we try to accept this stuff, we're losing the joyful gift that forgiveness gives us. And we can't allow the masking of immorality to destroy that gift. Now, I want to say here that if we want our family, especially our kids, to walk in clarity, to not walk in fog, we have to grasp what Jesus says about clarity. In Matthew 13 and also in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is asked, why do you speak in parables? He, his answer 
explains the clarity confusion matrix. Jesus tells us that he gives his followers, his believers, the secrets to the kingdom of heaven. And I want to emphasize gives. But to the non-believer, it has not been given. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 12, that we will be given more, those that have trusted him, and those that do not have the secrets, what little they understand, will be taken. Jesus tells us with explicit honesty why we have a land of confusion, because the world does not know the secrets, the mysteries of the kingdom that believers do. They do not know what we know, and this first should be a response in gratitude to God, but also a caution to the world. Clarity is a gift from God. He explains the futility of those who hear and don't understand, who see and don't comprehend as how the world works. Our adoption of moral wisdom from those without the secrets is going to be a joy-wrecking activity. It's actually worse than cafeteria Christianity. That's where you kind of pick what you like and you leave the others behind. But this is actually bringing the rotten food into the banquet. Now, a lot of people struggle with this sort of sovereignty in this who God gives clarity to and doesn't. And I just want to say, God does not invite us into his courtroom. We're not in the jury box. Uh, we don't write the legislative policy as to how he rules and who he gives this to and who he doesn't. This is not a public hearing. This is his business. And so we've got to grasp that and we've got to just trust in that. But ultimately, our kids need to understand that clarity is from the kingdom. And that's where it's going to be found. And the kingdom is for those who have trusted in his grace for redemption. God allows us to see and understand. And confusion is avoided when the love of God is more important than being accepted by those who remain in confusion. American evangelicalism struggles with this sovereignty of God stuff. Uh, we try to sing Amazing Grace, and then we want to mash it up with, you know, some, some self-performance and how we contributed to, you know, how smart we are. We are the champions. I are the tiger. I did it my way. We repeat mantras like, I don't personally believe in the right to be immoral, but I'm opposed to tell other people what to do, or no judgment. We, we love that phrase. But when we do this, we're failing to grasp, it's not what I believe. It's not what I like. We're admonished not to think too highly of ourselves. What we believe in and what we trust is what the Word of God says. And I think oftentimes this gets, this gets sidetracked because there's an, there's an evangelical obsession, particularly in evangelism, in believing that you can win over the culture with clever arguments as long as you're culturally relevant, tolerant, and accepting of these moral facades. This is what sank the Church of England. I mean, if you go back to that article and you read some of the things that these leaders say, and they don't only dismiss moral law. I mean, there's the, for the virgin birth, the resurrection. They even question the existence of God. Those that try to take away what Tolstoy is explaining, the basis of forgiveness, it's going to leave us with nothing but condemnation. And I fear that's what we're seeing this spirit of condemnation, this speculation towards the worst is spreading. Uh, let me give you one easy example. I'm at the gas pump yesterday, and a, and a lady named Maria Menunos, I don't know who she is, but apparently she's famous, and she's inviting me to a podcast in which she's going to help me identify 
friends who are caustic to me so that I know who to dump on my friendships. Wow. Talk about judgment. And then last week, I hate, I hate to get political, but we saw a jury in Georgia not just indict Trump and whatever his uh, cronies, whatever his people were into, but they wanted to extend it to two senators in Georgia, both who lost the election and who didn't even challenge the election of their losses, and a sitting senator in a neighboring state, completely outside the scope. It's not the politics, but where did a jury get this fever to condemn people like this? I don't know. I was watching this impeachment trial here in Texas of Attorney General Ken Paxton, who is allegedly accused of all sorts of improprieties. And, um, you know, I don't know what all is about it, but it's a fascinating case because Rusty Hardin, he's a famous Houston attorney. He's the guy that got the charges of obstruction of justice dropped against Arthur Anderson during the Enron trial. He's defended Roger Clemens, who said he didn't take any performance-enhancing drugs. And I'm telling you a list of professional NFL athletes that were accused of all sorts of sordid allegations. That's his client base. And yet he's the prosecutor. And what you saw in this was witness after witness seemed to be injecting their opinions and default towards a guilty label instead of innocent until proven guilty. It was like, hmm, there's smoke, there's fire, that whole mindset. And they alleged that Paxton used his office to help a donor. And, and so when they saw that, well, I'm going to run to the FBI and become a whistleblower. It was one ambiguous, circumstantial piece of evidence after the other that they speculated on as if it was a hard fact. I mean, it wasn't like, at least so far that I've watched, anybody said, yeah, I was sitting there and a guy walked in with a suitcase of money, laid it open, Paxton took it, and you know, there, there you go. None of that. Just speculation, circumstantial, hearsay. I mean, it just went on and on. But the, but the thing I, I found fascinating about this was like a new psychological phenomenon, a, con a condemnation bias, where the witnesses were just obsessed on finding something that had been broken, and they wanted to condemn. And they, would, they were going to find anything. Well, I want to say in closing, you, you throw away your Bible, you get rid of it, and you throw away the moral laws, you actually unleash the demons of condemnation. Got to watch this in our own hearts. You know, the, the, we go back to 2,000 years ago, that, that spirit was in those folks who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. We don't realize the price we pay when we roll the world's massed morality into our church, our faith, and our family. In closing, we got to belong to a fellowship that takes the Word of God seriously and honors it. We've got to practice repentance and forgiveness in our life and in our home. And we got to teach our kids that masking of sin only serves to harm ourselves. Or as the famous filmmaker Cecil B. DeMille, an Episcopalian, part of the Church of England once said, we don't break the law of God, we break ourselves against it. The ultimate battle for the heart and soul is a fight for identity. Our King invites our kids to know who they are, what to believe, and where they belong. Until next time, let's remember the words, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.